This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, and here on episode 23, it's part two of the interview with Ekaterina Klemenko, an expert on Russia and the Arctic at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. On the previous episode of the podcast, she provided a brilliant analysis of the Northern Sea Route and Russia's strategies and interests in the Arctic. This time, Ekaterina analyzes the complex and, from a geopolitical perspective, absolutely crucial relationship between Russia and China, with a focus on their increasing cooperation in the Arctic, which has certainly caused concern among some observers. And later in the episode, I'll be unveiling a new segment here on the podcast, which features polar historian Peter Roberts sharing obscure and extraordinary anecdotes from the Arctic and Antarctic. So if you want to learn about the Nazi expedition to Antarctica, which some conspiracy theories suggest involve flying saucers and secret bases, stay tuned to have Peter fill you in on the true story. But first, here's Ekaterina Klemenko, sharing her insights and analysis of the emerging strategic partnership between Russia, the geographic giant of the Arctic, and China, the ambitious Arctic outsider that wants to build a polar silk road along the northern reaches of Eurasia. A couple of general comments I would say is, yes, we see a dramatic improvement of relations between Russia and China for the past 10 years, and maybe even the focusing more on the past five years. It's getting better and better. At least we see a lot of bilateral visits, presidential meetings on the sides of the big forest, bilateral meetings. And it has been commented a couple of times that if you look throughout the history, it has never been better than now. And it's kind of at its highest peak. We don't really talk about alliance or them being allies in one way or another. No, but we still talk about, as you mentioned, strategic partnership. So the relations in moving towards this more partnerships rather than just alliance of convenience or even the just peaceful coexistence in a way. No, we're looking at partnership and a lot of it is explained through the personal chemistry between Putin and uh, Xi. So it's not so much maybe about some common goals, but it's also about this personal relations between these two leaders that allowed for strategic improvement of these relationships. And then if we talk about the Arctic per se, yes, we have seen a dramatic change of uh, Russia-China relations in the Arctic region. If we look throughout Russia's in 2000s, 2010s, in the past decade, and decade before that, Russia has not been really ever looking into China as a partner for the Arctic or partner for any of its energy resource development projects. It was looking at China as a consumer, as a huge market, as a potential, maybe even like a little brother there to whom we can sell all of our resources and make a lot of money out of this. And also long-term consumer that will be interested in this on a long-term basis. And Russia was mostly in an energy resource development. It was mostly looking at partnerships uh, in Europe, in the USA. They wanted to take over this part partnerships with international companies for technological exchange, managerial experience exchange. So they were interested in uh, cooperating with ExxonMobil, with Total, with Statoil, with anyone else but China. And it's not only about the Arctic, it's in general, they didn't want to have China as a part of their upstream projects. They didn't want China to have a stake in their resource development projects. They were always looking at somewhere else. 
But it has been changing since, I would say, 2012, 2013, and it really kicked in since 2014. After the conflict in Ukraine annexation of Crimea, the sanctions kicking in against Russia, which particularly targeted the Arctic resource development as well. There we see a U-turn towards the east in general. They call it a return to the east or turn to the east. But mostly we look, of course, at China because China is the main actor there. Russia is interested in working with, or at least China is really the actor who is interested in working with Russia. Also, we see that in general, energy cooperation, particularly after years and years, I would say even almost decades of negotiations, they finally managed to agree on the gas pipeline coming from Russia to China. It's argued that it's a really bad deal for Russia. It's not really that profitable. It's not the route they wanted for the pipeline, but nevertheless, it's there. They managed to agree on that. And whether it's profitable or not, it's still a thing for the debates, but we see it's there and it wasn't until the sanctions because they couldn't come up to an agreement. So it's always considered that this U-turn towards East, towards China, and this particular gas deal was kind of an indication that Russia can act and can find partners even though the sanctions were in there. They can uh, still develop their energy resources and they will always find the consumers and they wanted to show their independence from uh, the rest of the world just to show that they can do that. Same happened in the Arctic. That's why we see China as part of the Yamal LNG project. That's why we saw China as part of the negotiations with Rosneft on a number of offshore uh, resource development projects. And that's why we see a lot of talk about the polar silk road. That seems like it was a bit of a tipping point two years ago when uh, China announced its uh, Arctic strategy after all these uh, all this anticipation mm-hmm. for many years. In this particular term, the Polar Silk Road, it seems to have been embraced by Russia. They almost welcomed this and encouraged this idea that the Polar Silk Road, you think that Russian pride might be a little bit concerned about calling what they call the Northern Sea Route as something as more part of a, a Chinese uh, grand strategy. Has there been any pushback against that in Russia? It's interesting that everyone thinks that China came up with this idea of Polar Silk Road. That's actually not true. It's Russian idea. If you look at Russian sources and Russian speeches by the officials, Ragozin mentioned this polar silk road. He called it ice silk road. It was, well, the silk road parts of it was there. It was cold silk road, ice silk road, polar silk, all sorts of silk roads. But it has always been there and it was way before the Chinese Arctic strategy came to life. And it was uh, there in Russian for a very long time. I would say since maybe 2012, 2013. So even before the, uh, you I wouldn't say that the Chinese came up with the idea. And that's why I don't see any pushback on that. Because again, China has always been seen and maybe the interpretation of this term is very different. But the idea has always been there. Putin and Ragozin back then, he was heading the Arctic Commission of the Russian government. Both of them, at each and every meeting, they were mentioning this uh, cooperation with China on developing the uh, sea route, China as a potential investor into the infrastructure of China as a consumer. So it's nothing that Russia would push back on because 
it was their idea as well. And it was also, I would say, I'm not an expert on Belt and Road in general in other parts of the world, but the Russians also like to talk kind of in their imagination, connect the Belt and Road with the Arctic and kind of bring in that grandiose of that BRI project into the Arctic. And then when the China's uh, strategy uh, was published, it wasn't a surprise to me, but it was such a shock everywhere else. So they connected these two projects. If you watch the debate about Russia-China cooperation for a very long time before the strategy, it's nothing new. It's nothing that China would only come up with. I would say Russia would welcome this and welcome these investments into their infrastructure development. It's not only seaports, but it's also connecting the seaports via some road infrastructure as well. So it's nothing um, they would want to push back on. They would want to bring it in as much as possible. But then the question is how both of those countries interpret that. If Russia interprets that, that China gives us money, we do it what we want. Don't know how the Chinese will benefit from it, but we welcome the money. And maybe China looks at it from a bit uh, different perspective. They need to not only, you know, give the money, but also have a say in certain things. There, perhaps, we will see the tensions, but so far, nothing. You mentioned that one of the motivations for turning towards China was to show that Russia was independent. It was not dependent upon the West. But does Russia not see themselves as creating a new dependency except now on China? Yeah, absolutely. And that fear has been uh, there forever. That's why they were always interested uh, in uh, cooperating somewhere else, uh, not really with China. Back in the 90s, even, I would say, maybe late 90s rather than early 90s, there was this expression that Russia is becoming the resource appendage to China, just a source of resources rather than a source of technology, rather than being a big brother to China, a little brother. So that fear has always been there, but I would say they don't have much of a choice these days. They wanted to show they're independent, they wanted to show they're not isolated from the rest of the world, and then that rhetoric about dependency on China has been voiced down, I would say. They mostly talk about partnership, mutual interests, mutual benefits, rather than mm, we're really becoming dependent on them. But if you talk maybe privately to some of the experts on China, uh, and in general, uh, experts uh, debate in Russia, there is still this uh, concern that, yeah, now China is the only partner and we actually don't have anywhere else to turn to. In this paper that you wrote, I think it was 2017, so it's a few years old now, but perhaps I can't imagine this is erased uh, entirely, but this you use the term strategic mistrust that might have been there when this relationship was, the, the romance was a little bit in an earlier phase. Do you feel that that might still be there, this idea that, okay, we're, we're partners right now, but this might not last more than a couple of years, and, and then we have to really prepare for the eventuality that there could be a new conflict or a falling out in this relationship. I would say in the, it's still there. That's why we don't see the alliance between China and Russia. We see the cooperation here and there. We see increase of cooperation. Some may call it partnership in some areas. We see the bilateral military exercises. We see China in the Russian Arctic, so various new platforms for cooperation. But we don't see an alliance between those countries. It's just simply not there. And perhaps this mistrust is one of the reasons. Do you think that both sides see themselves as 
equal partners or do you think one side sees themselves as a little more equal than the other or how do they perceive this yeah, themselves? Yeah, as I said, there was this past experience and perception uh, by Russia that China is a little brother and China has challenged this on numerous occasions. It's kind of presented nicely that we have the cooperation, resource cooperation with China, we increase in trade, etc., etc. But at the same time, if you look at kind of skeptics of these uh, relations and their comments in the media, in the literature, academic literature, we see that this concern that China is pretty much the largest consumer of our oil, becoming the largest consumer of our gas soon if we kick in with this pipeline plus the LNG. So it's really what are we actually uh, delivering to China? We don't deliver much of made goods. It's all about the resources. So we're not really a technologically advanced partner there. Even with the arms trade also used to be considered like Russia is the source of new technologies for China. But I think that's uh, when it comes to military but I think that is also being challenged at this point. Now, how about in terms of the, the Arctic Council that received a lot of attention back in 2013 when China became an observer along with several other countries? How has uh, the Russia-Chinese relationship evolved in terms of Arctic governance? Does Russia help China have more influence through bodies such as the Arctic mm-hmm. Council than, than it would otherwise? Or does it still see China as a bit of a outsider that is not really a legitimate Arctic voice in terms of the governance of the region? Mm-hmm. I would say Russia likes the less people at the table, the better. When it comes to governance, that's their principle. Russia was very much in favor of this Arctic 5 format. When just the Arctic coastal states would get together and decide on the Arctic, they were really, really in favor of that. And when back in 2011, we did interviews with some Russian officials, that was there. So first we have the Arctic 5, then we have the Arctic Council. They really supported that format. Of course, it's kind of expanded then, and that idea has still been mentioned from time to time, actually, by the officials, but still more promoted the Arctic Council. But again, the Arctic Council is for the Arctic states. It is for the participants as well. They like to mention that indigenous participation is there, but it's still for the Arctic states, and everything should be decided by the Arctic states. They have various reasons kind of to promote this idea. First of all, because it's the Arctic states that have the sovereignty and the responsibility for its territories and people living there. And then if something bad happens, they will be the one feeling the consequences the most. So it has to be decided. Rules of the game, so to say, have to be established by them because they are there and because they will be most affected in case of something happens. And then comes the rest of the world, kind of. And there was never any support for the idea of anyone kind of coming into the table. They maybe would not object it openly. That's why China wasn't voted out becoming the Arctic observer. But at the same time, there was no huge campaign for that either. I heard the rumors, but again, it's just the rumors that they were kind of hoping the Canadians would against China. That's why they didn't do it themselves. They were not against them, but they are not so much in favor. And they like to remind everyone. And that's what came out from my research of the media and the speeches that the observers don't have only the right to be there, but they have the right to be there as long as they follow the rules established by the Arctic countries. And then if they don't, follow the rules, if they don't contribute positively, don't forget that the observership can always be revoked and you can be kicked out. So kind of, this is their rhetoric. We're not against you there, we're not so much for, we're not so much against you there, as long as you're following the rules. 
the rules that are made by the Arctic states. Yes, Russia, absolutely. Russia and the seven yeah. other permanent members of the, the Arctic Council. Yeah. Well, really interesting stuff about this uh, China-Russia relationship in the Arctic and beyond, but focusing mostly on the Arctic today with uh, Ekaterina Klemenko. And um, where do you see this relationship going? I mean, of course, you can, it's hard to predict. Coronavirus could create all kinds of outcomes and, and all the rest. And uh, these relationships are contingent upon mm-hmm. so many different issues. But do you see any trajectory, any, any, any place where you can actually make some predictions about where this will go? That's a very good question. Again, it will not only depend on the Arctic as such. It will depend on the market trends and oil and gas prices. It will also depend on how fast and dynamic the Chinese economy will be developed. Yeah, if China needs more and more energy, I would say the cooperation with Russia will keep developing. But China doesn't want to be locked into Russia only. So they will always keep diversifying and it doesn't matter how much Russia tries to kind of fix them to their gas pipeline or to their LNG, you know, China is not going to do that. So we will see this development, but I would say the more sanctions we have on Russia from somewhere else, the more closer we push Russia towards China and vice versa, the more maybe competition and tensions between China and US, they will also seek alternatives somewhere else and Russia would be one of them. I also wanted to mention the speech was given last year by Mike Pompeo at the Arctic yeah. Ministerial Meeting, where he singles out Russia and China as basically bad actors in the Arctic and in geostrategic competitors of the United States. How did that speech go over in, in Moscow and Beijing, do you think? Do you think that brought them closer? Last year, we had a workshop on 9 of May, right after. So we had some participants of the <laughs> Arctic Ministerials, which I can't name because the conversation was under Chatham House rules. But it was a huge uh, shock to everyone, actually. When one of the Arctic Council members, member states, points fingers to the other, never happens at the Arctic Council meetings. Never, ever. They all sit there and talk about stuff they can agree on. And security, I know it wasn't during the ministerial meeting itself, but security question, you know, it's excluded from the Arctic Council debate. So that was something, again, absolutely new, something shocking. And we were talking about the bursting of this Arctic bubble where everything was talking about cooperation, finding ways to live together and those mutual interests that we work on together. This was a huge uh, shock to everyone. And it wasn't only to Russia or China. It was to everyone else around the table as well, including indigenous participants. Because for them, if we have a lot of debate about big high politics, might be their voices might not be heard as much in the Arctic Council. I mean, to me, I see it as, as a bit of the opposite of the famous 1987 uh, Gorbachev speech on the Arctic, yeah. being a, re- a region of peaceful cooperation. <laughs> Mike yes. basically said just the opposite. It almost seems like it sort of bookends that era, sort of that period of Arctic cooperation. Yeah. With, with those two speeches. And one, one area that just, just may wrap up things really briefly that, that I think has been a getting a lot of attention in terms of the United States, Trump and Pompeo and the rest, is Greenland. Often China is mentioned as being very sort of uh, yeah. interested in Greenland. You don't hear so much about Russia and Greenland. I mean, that if China was to really assert itself in a place like Greenland, of course, that makes the United States nervous. It might make Canada nervous, mm. make Denmark nervous. How would Russia feel about, about having China, you know, establish relations independent of Russia in other Arctic countries like, like Greenland and perhaps Iceland and others? That's a very interesting question. You know, when uh, Russian newspapers talk about China, they mostly talk about Russia-China. That's kind of what they're interested in. When we look at the speeches by the Russian officials, it's also mostly mentioning there is no like 
concern that China is coming, you know, like in many of the media, that China is coming here, China is coming there. No, it's more, again, we're cooperating here and there, and China is our partner. As I said, Russia is quite okay with China everywhere else, as long as they follow the rules, they don't challenge Russia anywhere. And I would say they don't really challenge Russia if they are in Greenland or if they are in Iceland, because it's economic cooperation. It's still very difficult to compete with Russia's energy projects. It's a different type of projects in Iceland, Denmark's different scale. So yeah, I wouldn't say that they feel challenged there. That was Ekaterina Klemenko from CIPRI, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. And now it's time for the new segment here in the podcast, where polar historian Peter Roberts will educate and entertain us with a series of offbeat but true stories from the polar regions. First up is the strange tale of Neuschwabenland, the short-lived Nazi claim in Antarctica that spawned an enduring array of far-out conspiracy theories. Now, of all the interesting and strange things that have happened in the history of Antarctica, few can probably compare to the Nazi German Antarctic Expedition, 1938-39. to Now, I can hear many of you wondering, what were the Nazis doing in Antarctica in the first place? And that's actually a pretty good question. The justification for there being an expedition was the whaling industry. The thinking went more or less like this. There's lots of countries want to get in on the whaling action. If you have a territorial claim in Antarctica, you've got a stronger right to be there and catch those whales. Now, the catch is, what did you actually need the land for? By that stage, pretty much all Antarctic whaling was done on the high seas. You didn't need a land station anymore. And if you didn't need a land station, you didn't need anyone's permission to catch whales. You take that factory ship down to the high seas and you get to work. So what was the point of having a territorial claim? Well, it could be seen one way that you had a certain moral right to be in Antarctica. We own a bit of the place, we have a right to be here. But that's in a fairly vague way. So it's understandable that in the 70-odd years since, people have wondered exactly what the purpose was. And indeed, the expedition was fairly mysterious from the start. It wasn't publicly announced. Set off from Germany in December 1938, and a Norwegian bureaucrat and scientist by the name of Adolf Hall got wind of it, desperately got in touch with his government and said, I heard there were Germans coming down to the bit of Antarctica that Norway wishes to claim. Norway gets itself together in a hurry. 14 January 1939 declares what is now known as the Norwegian territory of Queen Maud Land. The Germans are still down there. What are they up to? Well, they've made it down to the edge of the ice and they are flying missions deep into the inland. Well, when I say deep, relatively deep by the standards of the time. Didn't get near the South Pole, but got a fair few kilometres inland. Dropped Nazi flags attached to iron stanchions out the window of the aircraft and took photographs of the terrain below. There were also some landings on the coastline where the German flag was erected. The ship turned round, sailed back to Germany, and in April 1939 returned. What were the legacies of this? Well, for the Germans, they hoped it would be the basis of a territorial claim, but that never happened. The territory known to the Germans as New Schwabenland, after the name of the ship, became null and void when the war broke out, and when the war finished, among the fine print of the agreements were that Germany and Japan were to renounce any claims to Antarctica. But the story doesn't end there. Four years afterwards, in 1949, a Norwegian-British-Swedish expedition went down to that same area, went over some of the same area the Germans had covered, and declared that the maps produced from the air photographs were not that good. No ground control, no necessary accuracy. But the story didn't end there either. In recent times, I dare say if you search for Nazi German Antarctic expedition on the internet, you will get the most wonderful set of results related to flying sources, secret Nazi bases, possibly even secret channels through the Earth itself by which submarines could go directly from the Arctic to the Antarctic. 
The more feverish conspiracy theories maintain that Hitler escaped on a submarine, possibly through Argentina, set up camp in Neuschwabenland, and possibly to this day continues the secret fight. A very secret fight indeed, one might say. There's a version of the theory that holds that the US backed Operation High Jump in the late 1940s, a massive effort that was on the surface intended to test cold weather military techniques and to chart the Antarctic, was actually a last military attempt to root the Nazis out of Antarctica, ridiculous as that seems. Extreme version of the theories also holds that the Nazis pioneered amazing technologies that enabled them not only to live in the ice, but even to use things that look like UFOs, the so-called Haunabu. Again, if you want to put it into Google, H-A-U-N-E-B-U, you'll probably get some very strange results. So prominent have these theories become that a few years ago, a British oceanographer, Colin Summerhays, wrote a very good book along with his German colleague Cornelia Ludica on the Third Reich in Antarctica, which had amongst its aims to definitively disprove that any such Nazi survival took place. I remember reading this at the time and thinking... You're absolutely right, but I think any right-thinking person knew already that you were right. They demolished the case completely, but there's not much of a case to demolish. And that, I think, rather begs the question, why do people want to believe that Hitler lived on in Antarctica and that the Nazi German expedition was the first step in a long, secret Nazi history of occupation? And I'm afraid to say that I sometimes think the answer is that as long as people have lingering affection for Hitler, they'll believe such things. And that's perhaps a rather dispiriting and discomforting truth that we might want to take from this. And that was Peter Roberts with his new segment on strange stories and true tales from the polar regions, exclusively here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.